This is Brian Bellick, and I'm joined by my partner, Jim Moore. And welcome to the Coach's Show podcast presented by Bud Light. It's a sure sign of the good time. So here we go. Tebow, quarterback draw. Tebow's going to be in the end zone. Two-point conversion. Successful. And we are tied at 15 with 17 seconds to go. You know, if I hadn't seen this myself, I really would not believe it. We had an interesting weekend this weekend. We had six new starters. A lot of them played like new starters, but none of them was more dramatic than, of course, in Denver with the Denver Broncos. How about their honor in the Florida team? I mean, it was like the perfect storm. Yeah, Tim Tebow, he's a tough guy for me to talk about, and here's why, because I have so much respect for the person. I mean, I love the kid. I'd want him to marry my daughter. He's a good-looking guy. He represents the league well. You know, he's everything you want. We got a butt in here someplace. I got to feel a butt's coming on. It's a big butt. Okay. Okay. But... If you ask me, after 25 years working in the National Football League, if I believe that this guy has the physical, the skills, the passing skills to win consistently at a high level in the National Football League, I would say right now, no. Now, by the end of the season, I might change my mind. Fortunately, we have some games which we can evaluate him. But right now, I'd say no. Love the kid. Love the competitor. Love the fact that he grabbed that game by the reins and he won it in the fourth quarter the way that he did in dramatic fashion. His, his teammates love him. But do I want him to be my quarterback if I'm butts. trying to win a Super Bowl? No. Yeah. And, 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 and as we said earlier, and this is the good thing about it, we have this time. When we talk right. about Tim Tebow coming in, that's what John Fox is going to be about. He said it himself. I don't like what I saw for the first 55 minutes. you got to love the last five minutes. Yeah. You love the energy. Anytime you're going to win. everything you want. And how many times do we sit there? Ultimately, the only way you're judged in this league is if you win, correct? Yes. yes. But now in the cool, calm of the office, the game is behind us. It's our job as coaches. we got to look at the film. we got to look at that first 55 minutes. we got to look at those 20-some-odd throws yep. and say, okay, can we see improvement? And this next week, yeah, we want to win, but we got to continue to put him in position to see can he play quarterback in this league and do the things that we know he's going to have to do for us to win. And look, this guy had four starts, okay? So one to, to, to take one side really hard over the other is not the prudent thing to do. What we got to look at is how is John Fox going to help this guy have success? And at the same time as he's having help him, helping him have success, how is he going to evaluate Tim Tebow, which is what you're talking about? Because at the end of the year, John Fox and John Elway need to have created enough plays, put enough films on or plays on film that they can go back and they can say definitively, this is our quarterback. Right. We can win a Super Bowl with this guy, or this isn't our quarterback. We can't win a Super Bowl and, with and this guy. And I like guy. the combination they've got doing it, a Hall of Fame quarterback. Now, his view of the NFL and what it is to play quarterback in this league might be conventional. And a defensive guy. I love it when a defensive guy can add a perspective on a quarterback because that's all you guys do all week long. How do I stop this quarterback? What are his strengths? Now you're going to be able to give a perspective from a defensive guy like John Fox and a Hall of Fame quarterback like John Elway. Tebow, they caught it. Denver and Tebow have won. Let's move on to another quarterback that I think we were both impressed with in his initial debut. Christian Ponder for, for Minnesota in a very difficult situation. It was the good news, bad news. Son, you get to start. The bad news is <laughs> it's against our arch rival, the Green Bay Packers, maybe the best team in the National Football League. I was impressed with what Christian Ponder did. Uh, and, and I don't even know what his numbers were. But just looking at the highlights, and you mentioned this, Brian, when we were preparing for this podcast, is he didn't look like a guy that you would say, wow, the game's too big for him. He looked like he was composed. He looked like he understood how the the Packers are trying to attack him. Uh, looked like he could read coverages. 
he looked composed uh, under pressure. He made some good throws. Yeah, he made some bad throws. He made some bad decisions. But just watching him, my general feel, my initial reaction to it was, this guy looks like an NFL quarterback right here. Yeah, when you're talking about a rookie quarterback, I think at even at its best, typically at its best, he's going to come out on the year under 60% completion. You're lucky if he doesn't throw more interceptions than touchdowns. But the question becomes, is the game too big for him? If you don't get a sense that it's too big, those are technical things, schematic things that he'll get better at. As long as the game's not too big, it will slow down is a term that everybody talks about at a quarterback, maybe at you know his 25th to 30th start, things start to slow down. He had an advantage in that compared to a lot of the other quarterbacks came out, whether it was a Jake Locker, whether it was an Andy Dalton, whether it was a, certainly a Cam Newton, certainly a Tim Tebow we just got done talking about. He came out of the most pro-ready offense. So he has a bit of an advantage that way. But I'm like you. I was impressed with the demeanor and the way he handled himself. Uh, and I think, as we said last week, it's the right thing to do for Minnesota because now every one of the snaps that he gets between now and the end of the season is going to have accelerate his growth as a legitimate NFL quarterback. They're going to be pleased the opening of the 2012 season that they've spent this time with Christian Ponder. Yeah, you said it actually a couple weeks ago. You said, you know, nothing against Donovan McNabb because, you know, I respect what he's done in his career, but you said it's time to put Christian Ponder in there. They aren't going to the playoffs. Let's see what this guy can do. And let's get him those reps that are so valuable that you just can't duplicate in an off season, in a preseason, or in training camp. So he's going to get those reps, and it's going to make him a better player. And you know, all indications off of one off of one performance, only one performance. But he looks like a guy that's just going to continue to get better. Well, uh, let's let's go on to another one now, and it, not necessarily the rookie, but the the Oakland Raiders, obviously, and it was an interesting week for them, obviously, with the trade for Carson Palmer. They make the decision not to start Carson Palmer, which was probably a good decision. we got to keep in mind that Carson Palmer comes in after no offseason, as no one had, no training camp. It's not like a guy had training camp and was even the backup someplace where he's getting the prep reps. This guy's coming in absolutely cold after a, a, a not a healthy season where he threw 20 interceptions, after um, – uh, a kind of surgery, the Tommy John surgery, which is always a concern for a quarterback. So to start him probably would have been an ill-advised simply from a concern for safety. Can he get out of the way, the speed of the game? So they start Kyle Buller. Kyle comes out, has a horrendous half, three interceptions, one for a touchdown. So I understand them having to go with Carson Palmer. The problem becomes Carson Palmer goes in, throws three interceptions, one for a touchdown. Uh, I don't know that it could have gone any worse for the Raiders in terms of what they were hoping to transition to. No, but the decision to put Carson Palmer in there in the second half was the correct decision, and it's it's a little bit similar to putting in a, a, a Christian Ponder. Yeah. You know, okay, this game is probably over. If we leave Kyle Bowler in there, we're probably not going to win this game. So let's get Carson some reps that he can learn from, that we can look at the film together in, in competitive situations. Let's get him back in the flow of competing. And he, did, he didn't play well, but I think the fact that he got those repetitions, that he was in the huddle, that he was in a competitive environment again, will help him down the road. I think it will certainly help him when they play again in two weeks. They, they have a bye, which is good. They're going to be able to get Carson more physically up to speed, and obviously mentally he'll have more of the game plan. 
One of the questions I do have, and this goes right to Hugh Jackson, who after the game, like you do as a coach, said, this is on me, it's my responsibility, not only as the head coach but as a play caller. You have six interceptions, two for touchdowns with two different quarterbacks. you you got to take a hard look at, well, what are we running here? What, what, what were we asking them to do uh, that we got into this situation? Because typical of what the Raiders have shown lately, they actually ran the ball pretty well. But two interceptions for touchdowns, that's hard to overcome. It is. And, and I think, you know, it's really, to me, you ask that question more in the first half than you ask it in the second half. And I say that because of this. you got Kyle Bowler, who is not a, a starter in this league. That's been well documented. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. So you want to tailor your offensive game plan early in the game to play to your strength, which is the run game, and stay away from having Bowler have to make decisions that can cost you a game. And he made some decisions that cost them a game. Now, I can understand in the second half, throwing caution to the wind and saying, hell, we're, we're probably going to lose the game. we got to get this guy some throws, okay? And even if, if it means we go down in, a, in flames, we got to get him some throws. So I'm not saying that they're, they were waving the white flag at all or conceding defeat, but I think what Hugh Jackson was doing was he was looking at the big picture, and he was saying in order for us to develop at that position with this Carson Palmer guy who's pretty darn good but hasn't been in our system We've got to accept the fact that we're going to put him in some bad situations and we're going to ask him to make some throws that, you know, he hasn't made lately, but we've got to do that for his development. We've not had a chance to talk since the trade has come about. Let's take just a minute talking about what the Raiders gave up for him. What's your view on what looks to be a first and a second for sure possibly could play to two firsts? Biggest concern I would have is that right now the Oakland Raiders do not have a pick in the first two days of the 2012 draft. Now, they're apt to get one in the complimentary draft, in a compensation draft in terms because they lost right. Gallery, they lost uh, uh, Namdi Asamoah, so they'll probably get a, a, third, a late third rounder. So they'll at least find their way into the first two days. But that, for an organization that wants to build going forward, that's quite a price. It's a big price. Uh, I guess my answer to the question would be, let's see – how he does. If he can come in there, Carson Palmer, and lead these guys this year to the playoffs, maybe they win the division, maybe they win a playoff game, and then next year, you know, they start out fast and he's on fire and they end up going to the AFC Championship game or the Super Bowl, and you say, what a great trade. But if they don't make the playoffs, if he goes down in flames, then you say, my goodness, you've just set your, your team, your organization back, you know, tenfold because, you, like you said, you build in this league through the draft, you supplement through free agency. And uh, they're not going to have any draft picks. Yeah, you know? and, and I don't know that uh, – and we'll see. I think you're exactly right. This is one of those we're going to look back and right. say, was it a good trade, bad trade? I think you have to give Mike Brown credit. And he got beat up pretty good in this process about you know being rigid. And not. But at the end of the day, they came out of it with two additional yes, picks they now. Did. By waiting out the way they did, I think he deserves a little credit for playing this in just the right way, playing a little bit of liar's poker about, oh, we're not going to let him out, we're not going to let him out. Okay, you want to give me first two, two first-round draft choice? Okay, I'll let him out. Now, I think he deserves a lot of credit, and I, I think Marvin deserves a lot of credit. And, you know, that's a team to watch because that's a good young football team Cincinnati is and now with these additional draft picks that they got for a guy that was not going to come back there he was, he was not going to be a Cincinnati they had moved on he had moved on you know I think that Mike Brown played it just right and I give Marvin credit or Marvin Lewis a lot of credit for uh, supporting that decision you know and for for with his team just getting the focus on the future you know I went and talked to him a couple weeks ago and he said when Carson said he wasn't coming back here 
he wasn't coming back here. We moved on. That distraction was never part of our program because he he wasn't going to be a Cincinnati Bengal. So I think they they both deserve a lot of credit there. And that took a lot of fortitude for a guy in the ninth year of, of a tenure where he's only had two years in the playoffs. But it was then an organizational decision that I give them credit for doing that together organizationally, supporting their head coach, who now has bought into this young team that's now sitting there looking pretty good. Now we'll see how the season finishes out with a good young quarterback that's getting lots of reps. And he, at the year's end, like we said, is likely to be those same type of numbers. But they're playing good defense. They can wrap around some of those draft choices going forward. I agree. I think the, the, the arrow's pointing up on the Cincinnati Bengals. I want to talk about this, Jim, because I need your your defensive expertise. I don't know if I have any expertise. No, 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 a lot lot more than mine, certainly. But let me – we've talked for the last couple weeks. It's our our coach's show and now the podcast has kind of been the uh, Philadelphia Eagles uh, uh, unofficial website because we've been talking a great deal about the Eagles' difficulties. They had the bye this week. And a lot of it has stemmed around this wide nine defense that they are struggling to implement. Well, I had an opportunity to – I had the Chicago, excuse me, the Detroit Lions, the Atlanta Falcons were visiting the Detroit Lions, a team that has much more experience, much more evolved in their wide nine defense. Also, we can look at the Tennessee Titans, where it kind of stems from Jim Schwartz and our, uh, Gunther Cunningham coming from there. It was very interesting for me to see this wide nine defense. Let's talk about what that defense is, the basics of it, what what it's made up of, because I got to tell you, I was not real impressed with the way they played it against Atlanta, a very good running team, and we just saw a Houston team rack up better than 220 yards rushing against a Tennessee Titan team that also favors this defense. I'm struggling to really see this as a legitimate defense that can stop the run in this league. Well, it's not designed to stop the run, and therein lies the problem because I believe in this league, really in football in general, it all starts with stopping the run. And we know it's a quarterback-driven league. But unless you can stop the run, you're never going to get a chance. You're not going to ever earn the right to rush the quarterback, to put pressure on the quarterback, because the offense is always going to have the advantage in terms of distance to go for a first down. The wide nine is a concept that takes the, the end to the tight end side. Typically would line up head up on the tight end or inside shade, which would be a seven or eight, and it puts him out in a, not in a nine, a nine would be outside shade of the tight end, but it actually puts him... You know, there's no part of the defensive end's body that would be covering up the tight end's body. And let's talk about those techniques before you go on, because a lot of people, because I get asked this a lot, we're talking about uh, typically you will number the shades right. for your defensive lineman, like you said. Inside eye on a tight end is a seven technique. Head up is an eight. Usually you don't you refer to it much yeah. often that way. And outside shoulder is a nine. And so, therefore, a wide nine is, like you're saying, a guy that's displaced all the way outside, right. even a whole gap removed, wider than the widest offensive man on the line. Yeah, and what it does, Brian, it's it's good for the pass because you get that angle to the to the quarterback. Uh, you're forcing uh, an offensive tackle to really take a dramatic kick step to get out to you, and you got that speed off the edge. When you're trying to stop the run, what happens is it it creates huge gaps inside. And one of the things defensively that you don't want to have happen is you don't want a tight end to get a free release up to a linebacker on a run. You, you would like to take something off the tight end on a run play. Heck, you'd like to take something off the tight end on a pass play, and you're not getting that. And so you're really stressing your linebackers, and you're really stressing your secondary because there's going to be a linebacker and a secondary that have to fit into that gap that you've just created. And when you're talking about good run defense, 
good run defense starts with building from the inside out and forcing the runs to bounce outside and then putting up an edge and forcing it back inside. And with this wide nine, you, you get what I call an inverted line of scrimmage. You get that nine technique up the field, and sure, he's contained the run, but now the runner breaks through the line of scrimmage, and then there's a big-time gap to the outside. Believe it or not, I'm having the same trouble with my 12-year-old's football team. Our ends are getting <laughs> go back too to far basics. up the field, yep. and the dang C-gap is gigantic, yep. and the tight end's getting off on our linebackers, and it's just killing us. Well, when I, I sat and had a chance to visit with Jim Schwartz and Gunther Cunningham, uh, and obviously two very good defensive minds in this game. And as I listened to them explain about the defense, and you talk about personnel, you got Indomitian Sue, Nick Farley, Corey Williams. The, those yeah, are, pro, you, those are pretty good inside yes, tackle positions. Is. you got Kyle Vandenbosch and Cliff Averill on the outside, ideally suited for these wide nine rush techniques. But as I listened to them talk about the freelancing of the do- defensive line and how the linebackers are expected to cover the defensive line, and then the secondary to cover the linebackers. I got to tell you, I've had, I've been lucky to, I've been around some pretty good linebackers. You've been around some pretty good defensive coaches. And too. I can't imagine if I tried to convince Ray Lewis oh, he ain't going for that, that this is what you need to do, that you need to cover the defensive line, that you could be A, B, C gap, that you need to flow. He'd go, I ain't doing that. No. There, there's no way. You're diminishing me as a line. You're asking too much of me as a linebacker. Right. You need to create. On defense, this is my opinion. I think it's probably my opinion in coaching in general. I think you need to create as much black and white as you can for your players. You're never going to be able to create you know, complete black and white. But if you can eliminate gray as much as possible so they can play fast and with certainty, then they're going to play more aggressive and they're going to make more plays because they know exactly what to do. Then they can utilize that great God-given ability that's gotten them to this level. When you create these these gray areas, you slow down the process for defensive players and you make it really difficult. And when you do that for linebackers where things happen so fast, because that's, a, that's probably from uh, asking a guy to read and react, playing linebacker is, I think, the toughest position on the defense to play because you're responsible for the run. You've got to get back in the pass. You've got to do a good job of reading yeah, your keys in terms of where to fit on blocks. You got to know where your drop is, who to relate to in coverage, and now you're saying, okay, you might have the A gap, you might have the B gap, you might have the C gap. It all depends on how that guy in front of you, in front of you, what he decides to do. I, I don't know that that's the best way to do it, and it's really surprising to me. You know, I worked with Gunther for a long time. He kind of brought me up in this league, and he was always a black and white guy. Right. Right. So it really surprised me. Eliminate the gray me. areas. Eliminate the gray, and it really surprised me this morning when we were talking. And you, you told me that about Gunther because that's a real departure from what I thought he was all about. Well, and I, and I'm probably showing my age here, but but you, I what are you late forties? Re- <laughs> yeah, right. God bless you. Um, I don't ever remember any coach. When a coach gets hired, what do you hear? We're going to play good defense. We're going to run the ball. And we're going to stop the run. Yes, the basic principles. <laughs> Can it? Now you may or may not get there, but that's the mentality. I was a little surprised, uh, and I've heard this from a couple defenses now, because, again, let's go back to the, the original premise. It's a quarterback-driven league, so therefore you have to be defense that can get to the quarterback. But their willingness to give up run yeah. yardage, like, you know what, we'll sacrifice a four- and five- and six-yard gain in the running game if we can get to the quarterback uh, and disrupt the game that way. And 
the game that I had with Atlanta is a perfect example of it that Atlanta, who truly lives by we're going to run the ball, set up the play-action pass, uh, it played right into their hands, and, and, and they weren't able to get the win because that chump change in the running game eventually beat you. I was a defensive back coach in this league for a long, long time. And when I became a coordinator, it became crystal clear to me that you have to stop the run. I might have been a little bit selfish as a defensive back coach because you're always looking at the numbers because you're right. judged on the numbers. Sure. You know? and that's how you get to the next position. But when I became a coordinator, even though my, my background was, you know, hey, we've got to stop the pass, it immediately changed to, hey, we've got to stop the run because if we don't stop the run, they've got us either way. And if we don't stop the run, we're never going to get in a situation where we can – turn it loose, and go after the quarterback. You know, along those lines, because we've talked about when we started out doing the podcast and the coaches show, we had this explosion of 300-yard passing games in the first couple weeks and just on a record pace. And and you made the point, and rightfully so, uh, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting to that part of the season where that's going to calm down a little bit, if for no other reason than the weather. We had three this last week. So I think things are beginning to calm down a little bit in terms of the pass happy. I think defenses are kind of getting their stride back underneath them without the off season and the limited training camp, that type of thing. Um, I still think, obviously, with the depth of quarterback play in this league, it is still an issue. But we've talked about many times, the numbers in this game don't change at the end of the year in terms of third down categories, uh, runs versus pass, total plays. I mean, it's it's a very symmetrical game in terms of it doesn't change and I think we're seeing the league come back to that understanding and I think the better teams uh, before it was forget defense let's just crank it up with offense it seems to be that the teams that are atop the league right now seem to have a better balance and have are playing better defense it's not just a quarterback driven league that says how many 300 yard games can we throw for no it, it things normalize in this league and i think early in the season one of the reasons we saw this explosion of yards in the past game is that in the off season that was an unstructured off season where coaches were not necessarily involved and teams couldn't, couldn't go out and compete against each other in an in an environment that was structured offenses could go out receivers and quarterbacks and backs could go out and they could practice versus air. They could run their routes. They could work on their timing. They could work through how they were going to adjust to certain coverages. They didn't need a defense to do those things. But you can't play defense without an offense. You can't go out and play defense on air. You know, that just isn't – that's impossible. But now that, you know, we are six weeks into the season – you're starting to see the balance come back to the league. And, and you and I both agree that that will end up being the case at the end of the year. Things will be like they've always been. Let's talk about an interesting matchup coming up that will pit that very philosophy. We've got the New England Patriots at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, if there's anybody that defines the idea of playing defense, it's the Pittsburgh Steelers and uh, Dick LeBeau and one of you know the, the great defensive coaches in this game, in the history of this game. The Patriots are a team that, at least up to now, have not shown the ability to play a lot of defense. Now you got Tom Brady and the small ball, and so uh, you got to keep up. We're going to turn this into a track meet. Therefore, your great defense isn't going to you. Your offense better keep up with me. But this is going to be a classic battle between that mentality and the Steelers, who are playing pretty good offense with Roethlisberger and all that they do. But still, playing sound defense is always going to be the corner store for the Steelers. Well, really, it will be fun to watch and see what really two two masters. And we're talking about a head coach in in uh, 
Bill Belichick and, as you mentioned, Dick LeBeau on defense and kind of the chess match that they play and the strategies that unfold during the game. And I'm really interested to see what Dick LeBeau does defensively. If he goes to a softer zone-type coverage or if he really comes after Brady, I'm sure he'll mix it up. Uh, you know, they're not going to go away from what they do best. And what they do best is they they rush zone. You know, they bring those three defensive linemen and one or two of the linebackers or a safety Uh but, you know, the key when you play the Patriots, to me, is playing great leverage because I think what happens is they break down your leverage and your pass routes, especially Wes Welker. You know, he, he beats you to where you're supposed to be strong. Uh, and then the other thing is tackling. You know, you've got to be able to tackle these guys. And I guess there's one other thing, that's matching up to those really good tight ends. And I guess there's another thing, and that's getting a break. And it, the, you know, I, start with, I started like with one, and then all of a sudden you got about five different things, and that's, that's why they're really hard to defend. You sound that line like that linebacker. Ooh, that, watch the draw, watch the sweep, yeah, watch no, the watch trap. Everything. Watch everything. Yeah. Um, I, I think by way of the Patriots, one advantage they may have, and having played the Steelers all those years with the great rivalry we had in Baltimore, um, one thing you don't want to do against the Steelers is is batten down the hatches. You, you go too tight, too back, downhill, they're going to kill you. You've got to be able to spread them out. And certainly that is something that the New England Patriots can do. They can stretch this Steeler defense in a way that few teams can. And, you know, when you spread them out, when you spread it out and, you, you, uh, and you're pressuring on defense, okay, you've got to be able to get home, okay? And when you're facing Tom Brady – you know this, that guys can come scot-free, and because of his understanding of their offense and knowing where to throw the ball and his quick release, you can come scot-free, and he gets rid of it right now. So I think it's going to be imperative that somehow they get some batted balls or they make some good plays down the field on the ball because I don't know that they're just going to get to Tom Brady. They might right. get some hits on him, but he, he's great at getting rid of the ball. He knows where to go to it when there's an unblocked guy. And New England's played better defensively of late. But I think Roethlisberger, in typical Roethlisberger way, can keep a play alive long enough that that may stretch that New England defense just a bit in a way they haven't been stretched, in kind of an unorthodox way that you really can't account for. It's not like schematically you're stretching them in a way because you know Belichick will adapt. But Roethlisberger does this in such an unorthodox way that you can't account for because it varies from play to play to play the way he, he can break down a defense by just elongating the time that he's in the pocket. I don't know how you defense it sometimes. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when you're playing defense and a team comes out in a particular formation, you've got these tactical clues that tell you this is what they're probably going to do. And then when a route unfolds and you see the concept of the route defensively, you know what's happening. Right, you still got to stop it. But like to your point, all of a sudden the, the play breaks down, okay, and the ball's not thrown on time. And now Big Ben is back there, and he's moving around, and he's stiff-arming the rushers, and he's buying time. Now it becomes more like a basketball game, you know, it, it, or a hockey game. You know, guys are moving in pos- into positions, into areas that they wouldn't typically move to. The route structure is broken down, and then it gets really tough to defend. Uh, let's go on to another great matchup. Okay, and in the NFC, it's going to be the Cowboys versus the Eagles. We just talked about the Eagles and their wide nine and their extension of that. DeMarco Murray just cranked off 253 yards rushing. To me, it all comes down to that. Has Philadelphia, with a week off, tightened up their fits and their wide nine defense to stop the running game of the Dallas Cowboys? I don't know. I can't wait to see if they have or not. I, you know, um, certainly against the Redskins, they were better. But uh, whether or not they can continue to improve will be uh, interesting to see. You know, they, they've also struggled in coverage. 
You know, so they've struggled really all over on defense. They haven't really done anything well except rush the passer. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they've really gotten that figured out or not. If I think if they can go in defensively against the Cowboys and play a really solid game and hold the rushing game, you know, in check and get some pressure on the quarterback and look in the secondary as if they're organized, then that'll say a lot about the progress that they're making. But if they get gashed in the run and if they give up big plays in the pass, and we know that the the Cowboys are capable of doing both of those things, then it's, man, it's back to the drawing board. We don't have it figured out yet. Philadelphia is going to challenge that Dallas defense. Michael Vick and they're rested now, a little healthier. Uh, the offensive line has maybe solidified yeah. itself a little bit because they were rolling through some guys there. They just got to take care of the football. Absolutely. No turnovers, particularly in the red zone. Yeah, and that, that's been their problem because they, they rack up the yards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they they are almost impossible to stop, but they end up stopping themselves with the turnovers, you know, and, and those are killers. Well, if the Cowboys can keep this formula, they can run the ball like we saw them do it now with St. Louis. And, okay, so you got to qualify a little bit. Keep Tony Romo to the minimal throws. Play a little bit better defense now. The Cowboys are going to be a factor here now, so it's it's going to be a fun game. Well, that's going to do it for the Coach's Show podcast presented by Bud Light. You can download the Coach's Show podcast from iTunes or go to the NFL.com slash podcast. And also be sure to catch the Coach's Show on the NFL Network every Monday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for listening.